0: I think that's pretty intentional. Okay, I'll get the message. I'm really not joking. Somebody did put a watch here. (laughs) Second Peter, you know, I was recently skyping one of my good friends in New Zealand, and I felt so sad to get off of Skype with him. And we ended up just kind of sitting and talking about a bunch of nothing for the last twenty minutes. because I was so enjoying being in his presence, that's how I feel right now about Second Peter. We've been in Second Peter for about five months, and this is our last sermon in Second Peter, and I have loved mining the gold out of Second Peter. Uh, next week, we'll start Isaiah, and we'll be there for quite a while. Second Peter starts chapter three by saying, "This is the second letter to you." And the goal is to stimulate the believers to clear thinking in the face of false teachers who are very persuasive in pushing the church in a certain direction. Now, he starts chapter 3 by summarizing what he's already said. So in the face of these false teachers who are attacking the gospel in various ways, he said, remember the Old Testament prophets and prophecies. Remember that we have had scoffers and false teachers all the way back to the time of Moses. And remember that these men are committed really to their own sinful desires, not to building up of the church. Now in chapter 3, for the first time, then he head-on addresses the false teaching. Verse 4, they say, meaning this false teachers, where's the promise of his coming? This is how God works. God creates but does not intervene, the false teachers are saying. So the idea that Jesus is coming again is absolute nonsense and rubbish because God doesn't intervene in his world. And therefore, because Christ is not coming again, there is no second judgment. Just live however you want. Peter answers their teaching in two different ways first he says God always intervenes creation itself Peter says in chapter 3 was intervention what about the flood that was God's intervention and God's coming again when Christ comes again and his final intervention to restore the world the way it was in the beginning with Christ purifying fire now this morning we're going to look at his second answer To the false teacher's attack that Jesus is not coming again. And his second answer is just this. Mercy. Why has Jesus not come again? Mercy. Let's read the text. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 1 and read down to verse 9. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's answer one. Here's answer two. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Let's pray for our time. Oh Lord, we have the same question Why has Christ not come again? We look at the world and we see what's happening to churches and believers around the world in the suffering, the executions, the punishments, the pillaging. And we say, Jesus, why have you not come? When are you coming again? God, and I thank you for these answers that Peter gives us. Lord, that you are God that intervenes. And secondly, it is mercy and grace that Christ has not come yet. Father, I pray when we leave here today that every believer in this room would want to worship you because of the truth that they hear from your Scripture. Lord, and we would marvel and glory and praise you for your grace and your patience. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, one of the most difficult questions in the church, and one that I've heard over the years, is why, if Jesus says he's coming and coming quickly, why has he not come yet? For many, I found that this is one of the reasons that they've actually not become Christians. When I was seven, my parents were separated, and one lived in the north part of the state and one kind of in the southern part of the state. And so they would meet in Birmingham, and we'd meet at O'Charlie's in Birmingham and drop me off. And so this went on for a while, and I would sit there with my bags and wait. And there was one particular Friday night that I sat there, one parent dropped me off, and and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And it got awkward, and I waited. And finally, the waitress started bringing food and drinks to me. And then she started coming up to me, and the manager saying, Now, where are you from? Is there really someone coming to get you? Eventually, my ride, my parent did come and apologize profusely, and they got hung up with something. But I'll never forget that night, doubting if someone was really wondering, did they forget what happens when you are waiting on someone and they don't come, which we've all experienced? Well, we infer they've changed their plans maybe. They, they've forgotten their promise. They're not in a position to fulfill their word. How do you see the delay, as the world says, of the coming of Christ? For many... They judge the passing of time as proof of the falsehood of the gospel message. Many often think if he was not if he has not come yet, he's not coming. And if he's not coming then the gospel is not true. 2nd Peter 2, it only took 30 years or so after the death of Christ before those scoffers begin to infect the church with these type doubts. Why is he not come? Where is he? Doesn't this mean he's not really coming? Peter's second response to that question is found in verse 9 when he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill promises, but he's patient. Why is Christ not come? Mercy, grace. God manages time to promote salvation. The reason Christ has not come again is not that he forgot or he's not faithful, but because he wants people to be saved and does not want anyone to perish and go to hell. So here's a big idea this morning that we want to unpack and go deeper into is God manages time to promote our salvation. Okay? Two things we want to see about that. First is, the Lord is not slow. And second, the Lord is patient. So if you'll look at verse 8 and 9 with me in your Bibles once more. The Lord is not slow. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Notice how he says one fact there. Don't overlook this one fact. So they are confronted with these false teachers who are living a very sinful lifestyle, fearless of any sort of future judgment. And Peter says, God has always intervened in the world. Consider that, but also consider that he's got purpose with how he sees time. Now, he takes them then to Psalm 90 verse 4, and I want to read that to you. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday... Now, Peter takes that, Psalm 94, and he builds on it. And this is what he says. With the Lord, one day is is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He's saying the fact that he has not arrived says nothing about if he will come in the future. Why? Because God does not view time the way we view time. Two things here. First, To God, a thousand years is like a day. Means that God can accomplish a thousand years worth of work in the quickest of times, is what he's saying. But then he flips that on its head, and he says also to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. What we find slow, he does not find slow. What we think takes forever, to him, is just a day. What's the point? Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. The delay in Christ's coming, the second advent, you might say, the second coming of Christ, is not because God is slow, as man measures slowness, but because he has purpose that cannot be achieved quickly. Think about this for a minute. The early church struggled with in the early church struggled with impatience for the return of Christ, and they lived in a culture that was relatively slow. They had no phones. They had no phones. They had no texting. They had no instant communication. They had no email. Slow. Was the day in terms of receiving news. It might be months, it might be years before you received a message that you were waiting for. And yet they grew impatient, waiting only 30 years for the return of Christ. Now, our culture is microwavable. The process of doing something that takes time has been removed and replaced by Convenience. Pop the frozen food in the microwave and I'm ready to eat in three minutes. I want my breakfast in one minute. What comes with all those conveniences is a modern mindset that we want everything, we want it quick and we want it easy, right? Yes. And we have a hard time committing to anything that takes time and process to complete. The church thinks also that God's work and his second coming should be done the same way, microwavable. Dr. Zach Eswine describes it like this. He says, we want God's work to come in three main ways, big, notable, and fast. The church wants to do large things in famous ways and as fast as possible. So a typical church advertisement is something like this. Come to Mega Church X. Okay, why should I come to Mega Church X? Big. It's the biggest movement of God around. Okay, notable. Your life will be transformed when you walk through the door. Fast. It's the fastest growing movement in the history of the church. Wow, I got to go to that. Big, fast, notable. The work of God in our lives and in his church, in his world, and in his second coming is usually, excluding times of revival, just the opposite. Often slow over a long period of time. One person's lives being changed at a time. God uses ordinary things and ordinary people and ordinary Ordinary means of grace, preaching of the word, teaching, discipling, evangelism, sacraments, ordinary relationships between two ladies who go and have accountability at the coffee shop. Burden bean, of course. Means of grace. And slowly God's work is often like the sun rising. You don't see it happening. Not immediate, but it's accomplished in His purposes. God has not changed. This is how He's always worked in the first coming of Christ and in the second coming of Christ. But also, my friends, in your life, God is a God of process. Okay, Rusty, does that mean, are you saying that anything big, notable, and fast is bad and not of God? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is love the ordinary works of God, but long for the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. Love the ordinary work in your life, in the church, in your family, in the fact that Christ is coming back, but long for a deeper outpouring of the Holy Spirit and pray the same words that Revelation ends with, Come, Lord Jesus, come. God manages to promote your salvation, time to promote your salvation. If God is not slow in Christ returning, then what's he doing? Second point, he is patient. If you'll look at verse 9 with me, patient. But is patient towards you. I'm going to flip this watch over so I can be patient. I keep seeing it. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice those words, patient with you. It's not slowness the reason he's not coming, the second advent, second coming. He's patient. Okay, Rusty, patient for what? Well, look at your scriptures. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Notice he makes it personal. He's patient with you. He's saying the reason Christ has not come again is so that you could have been saved. Christ coming again does not depend on how much time has passed, but on God accomplishing his purposes of saving you and saving me. And it's because God is patient that we are here, and we're saved, and we know him. God has no pleasure in the death or the punishment of the wicked. God has no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. Where's that? Ezekiel eighteen twenty three, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God takes no delight in punishing people and truly all desire to, for people to be saved, and therefore he's patient for Christ to come again. Now stop. That raises a giant and even a bigger question. If it's God's will that everyone to be saved, won't everyone be saved? You just said, Rusty, it's God's will. Doesn't God always accomplish his will? Aren't you teaching evangelical universalism, which is a big term that simply means that Jesus is going to save everybody? It just says that it's God's will. He doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell. Well, no. No, no, no. On several fronts. Let me explain. Because that is a radically invasive view in our church today. Destructive. Not Christian. I want to just... First, context. Context is king. Verse 7 comes before verse 9. You understand verse 9 in light of verse 7. Let me read you verse 7. But by the same word... The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter just told that there will be a final judgment, and the ungodly will face his judgment, his destruction. So no, the text says it. Second, no from a theological understanding. We have two choices in this text. Either God has one will or God has two. My question is, do you have one will or do you have two? say, what are you talking about? If God has one will, then all people will be saved, which is contrary to the Scriptures. Yes, if God has one will, then yes, he wills for everybody to be saved. He wants that, therefore everybody will be saved. But God has two wills. One's called his desires and the other is called his decrees. One's called his desires, the other's called his decrees. God, like us, can at the same time desire that all people would not face his judgment because he is merciful, and at the same time be a just judge and decree that there must be a judgment. Do You see that? God really does desire that all people be saved. And is patient for that to happen. But at the same time, he will do what is right and true. I have an uncle who is a retired judge in North Alabama. And one of the things I marvel about this man is how much he loved people, and yet he convicted them. He had no desire to see people go to jail and suffer. But at the same time, he is the one who was sending them to jail because of what is right and just in the law. A good judge has a real desire that no one break the law and go to jail and does everything to ensure that that happens, yet he himself or she herself will be the one who enforces the rule of law. Two wills, a desired will and a decreed will. A parent has a real desire that their children should not be punished, and yet they are the ones who have the obligation to punish them. A desired will and a decreed will. Do you see that? And so, God at the same time is merciful in His compassion and longs for no one to face His judgment. That's His will. And at the same time, His character is a God of justice and mercy, and he must, because of who he is, punish sin. How do we think and live this? Let's just finish with this. This text should shape how we worship. The false teachers see God's patience and grace as slowness and an argument against the truth of the gospel and a reason not to believe. Peter says, Jesus has not come again. It's just the opposite. It's because of patience and it should lead you to worship. The very fact that Christ has not yet come should lead us to thank God for his patience and grace that he truly desires all people to repent, believe, and be saved. John Calvin says it like this, so wonderful is God's love towards mankind that he would have them all to be saved and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost. Last few thoughts. As you worship God this year, know he is a God that is slow to anger. He is a God that is abounding and steadfast love and one, like John Calvin says, of his own self, has provided forgiveness to man. God has revealed his heart most on the cross. His glory is seen in providing forgiveness to mankind through the punishment of his own son. And in his desire that all should be saved, in his patience and his grace, the advent for his son to come again is... Long, and when his time does come again, verse ten will happen. It says this: the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and all man's works will be exposed. And Christ will judge, cleanse with fire, and renovate his world from all the decomposing effects of sin. Amen. Father. I just praise you now as we're about to take the Lord's Supper. Thank you for an advent, a, a, which is a word, Lord, that thank you for this time. Thank you for over 2,000 or 2,000 years or so since the death and resurrection of Christ. We praise you and we thank you that in your wisdom you were patient and the gospel is going forth and we will see people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every nation, Come to faith and worshiping you. And at the same time, like Revelation says, we ask when we look at the world and we look at the pain and we look at the suffering, Lord, we ask, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Yet we rest in your perfect patience in all things. Lord, I pray, lastly, that your patience would be in your grace, would be part of the fire that motivates us to worship you because you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I could have the elders to come forward, please.